It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but there's no need. Something in your own head, beat it up, and I have got no sleep. The whole energy is with the fear fight down. I fire in a fire, but the system doesn't gang. The government will hire in a combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're getting down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. <laughs> And bloom. I go, I go low. We're going to go low. Yes, when when I go low, you go lower. lower. I can't, though. You I have know. a very deep voice. Oh, you know what you have? You have a, a movie announcer voice. I doubt it greatly. You do. You do. Well. Especially when you're on the phone with me. You have a very deep, sexy voice. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'll say, did you, did you pick up the dry cleaning? Yeah, yes. That's pretty sexy, right? All right, well. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a bastion of benevolence in a bacterial world. In <laughs> a bacterial world. That's, That's right. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. That's right. And together we are the dynamic duo, the prodigious pair, the courageous couple. And we, we are here, by the way, to help you, to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With an antagonistic alligator? Well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract nor provider-patient relationship exists or is applied between the host and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it exists or is available. That's or- right. You want modern medicine on your side. People are there. They can help you. Go to them. Absolutely. This is like a a voice from beyond. A voice from beyond. (laughs) Well, you want modern medicine on your side. Absolutely. In your war against disease and trauma. That's for sure. Especially if the you know what hits the fan. But what if that isn't an option because of some major disaster that takes society to the brink? Well, you might just end up being the highest medical asset left to your family in an emergency. So... You know what? I'll bet that scares the snot out of you. But, you know, it does not have to. Show the world you've got more sense than a satchel full of sassafras and get some training. 
learn something. And while you're at it, how about some supplies and a quality medical kit to go along with all that knowledge? And I can't think of a better place to get it than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated but never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'd face in any disaster. They'll make your workplace, your, your school, your church safer, gosh. And they are designed by, indeed, by a real-life medical doctor. Here I am. And an advanced <laughs> registered nurse practitioner. I want you to compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff. And I think you'll agree our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. But don't take our word for it. Check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net and see what folks just like you have to say about our kits and service. On top of all that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings account. Just let us know you need paperwork and we will do it immediately. Absolutely. Hey, you know what? We learn as much from you as you do from us. I don't know what that says, but <laughs> feel free to cast a pearl of wisdom before us, Gus, and connect with the geezer and the goddess. It's easy, and here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. You can connect, contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. You can also follow our Facebook page for our company, Doom and Bloom. You can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show because this is a Prepper Show. <laughs> right. And don't forget our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. There you go. Oh, we want to also make sure that you know about our new book. It's going to be coming up soon. It's called Alton's <laughs> Antibiotics and Infectious <Very> Disease. <laughs> Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, the layman's guide to available antibiotics in austere settings. And so this is a book that talks about antibiotics, the kind of antibiotics that we've talked about for many years. We were the first ones, at least medical professionals, to talk about. And those are fish and bird antibiotics for use in true survival situations, long-term survival. And this is a unique book. Nobody else has written a book that has anything like this in it. It's something that you should definitely talk about. Uh, uh, check out. We have all the it. antibiotics yep. there. We and we talk about exactly the doses, uh, whether you can use them in pediatric cases and pregnancy. We talk about infectious disease in general. We talk about how to identify a number of different infectious diseases. Which is difficult and, when you don't have laboratories available. That's right. And all of this is in plain English that the average person can understand. And we do everything possible to give you the information that you need that might help save a life in a true disaster situation. When you're off the grid and the antibiotics are a thing of the past, well, you want to have saved up a few, and we talk to you exactly about how to do it in such a fashion that you can use them effectively and hopefully, as I mentioned, save a life. Uh, let's see. when the bo Oh, the book, actually, we got the proof just a couple of days ago. Unfortunately, we found a few little typographical errors, a couple of Places where we needed Which I'm to add, at right now, an I S, the final. <laughs> uh, add an S to a word, or you oh, know, yeah. misspelled a word, or or there was one where it looks like a sentence was like just added in there that we just mistyped or something. Like that. <laughs> Didn't make any sense. That's all so, right. So there we, were only twenty out of three hundred and twenty-two pages. I think that's pretty good. That is pretty tiny good. little delete one word, right. add an S. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so not too Pretty bad. Pretty good, I'd say. <laughs> well, so let's talk a little bit about 
since we're talking about a book about bacteria and infectious disease, let's sort of understand a little bit about bacteria and to understand things that are going on with bacteria, bacteria and bacterial disease today, it's useful to understand the history behind them. So let's talk about bacteria. Bacteria have played their part in the evolution of the planet for, gosh, millions and millions, hundreds of millions, honestly, of years. There have been fossils of microorganisms like bacteria have been discovered in stone dating at least 500 million years old. That is pretty amazing. Some argue that primitive bacteria existed almost as far back as the very, very beginning of Earth's history. Now, for the majority of their time on Earth, bacteria have been the predominant life form, and they've left their mark, good or bad, on every species that came after them. Now, the presence of oxygen in the atmosphere and thus the possibility of life as we know it is actually a consequence of bacteria, specifically a type of bacteria, confusingly called blue-green algae, but actually called cyanobacteria. Cyanobacteria were the earliest users of a process called photosynthesis, where water, carbon dioxide, and sunlight combine to produce oxygen. Even today, that part of a plant cell, which actually conducts photosynthesis, uh, that part is called a chloroplast, by the way, is essentially just a cyanobacterium. Now, despite this, humans had little idea that bacteria were such a pervasive presence in our world. Indeed, we were completely unaware of their existence, if you can imagine, if not at least the diseases they caused. And as new innovations like magnifying glasses and in the 13th century, simple microscopes in the 16th century were developed, we began to learn more about a world that we previously didn't even know existed. It wasn't until the invention of an actual microscope that bacteria were discovered. In 1676, there was um, a Dutchman known as Antony van Leeuwenhoek, and I may be pronouncing that incorrectly, he was the first to publish articles on bacteria and protozoans. He called these things animalcules, like molecule, but animalcules. Uh, and as well as being able to see red blood cells for the first time, human sperm for the first time. So his amazing findings from his microscope were considered mere curiosities at the time. There actually were no further reports on bacteria for another hundred years or so. But by the mid-1800s, however, the connection between bacteria and disease was a little better appreciated as the result of the work of one Louis Pasteur, Louis Pasteur, Louis, Louis Pasteur, <laughs> that's right, a famous, so famous scientist. French, he's French, right? Yes. Louis? Right. He performed studies to determine why milk and wine went sour with time, and sure enough, that indeed does happen, and Pasteur concluded that bacteria were the culprits. He deduced that if bacteria could make milk or wine sick, then why can't it make human beings sick? Well, this assumption led to something called the germ theory of disease, which that microbes, suggests that microbes are the cause of infectious diseases. Now, Pasteur himself was unable to prove this theory. It was a theory for a period of time, but a Later, German scientist named Robert Koch, he performed an experiment that did. He, what he did is injected mice with bacteria taken from animals that died from anthrax. And the injected mice then all developed anthrax themselves in very short order. It took the invention of the light bulb, honestly, 
patented in, I think, 1880 by Thomas Edison for microscope technology to reach its maximum potential. Until then, you needed to have some, maybe a candle or something like that. Light just was not as good. So this is when you really were able to see things. You turn on the light and you really can... It was just such a miracle. Absolutely. and uh, But since then, there have been a lot of new techniques for visualizing microbes, like electron microscopy and all that, that you really get an incredible view. Uh, we use some of those uh, images, actually, in our book. And I think it consists, I think the cover of the book consists of an image like that. Yes, it does. That's right. Uh, so now we have as detailed a look as we possibly can have at bacteria and other microbes. Now, there were ancient cultures, these guys that, that were unaware, as you can imagine, of the microscopic germs that caused infection, but many developed and used treatments that, to deal with the sickness caused by them that led once one day in the far, far future to the development of antibiotics. They actually used raw materials like penicillin mold that they were able to, to use that had some antibacterial effect. So that's a little bit of history of bacteria. Now let's talk a little bit about the history of the drugs that kill them. Let's talk about the history of antibiotics. The earliest known evidence of antibiotics has been found in the bones of ancient Nubians. Nubians, uh, the Nubia was a civilization that lived in what is now Sudan. That's south of Egypt, probably about 2,000 years ago. Now studies on the remains of these people suggest that they ingested somehow the antibiotic tetracycline on a regular basis. Now, how is that possible? Finding tetracycline, which was a drug first introduced in modern times after World War II, if you find that in bones or other relics that old, I mean, that's tantamount to finding like a Neanderthal skeleton holding a cell phone. You know? <laughs> yeah, that would be I a mean, little freaky. Pretty crazy, <laughs> crazy stuff, I think. Well... Of course, there was some understandable skepticism on the part of the scientific community. Uh, it was eventually figured out that the Nubians accidentally produced the tetracycline when they made, guess what, beer. Beer. The antibiotic is produced apparently by a bacterium in the soil that grows well in hot, dry areas such as Egypt and Sudan. And likely, it contaminated the beer during the fermentation process. Of course, the Nubians had no idea that this was happening. And still, scientists were skeptical. So what they, to test it, they had some graduate students that experimented with making the beer in the way that the Nubians made it. And sure enough, it had tetracycline in it. Although I have to say, looking at the images of this experiment, it doesn't look much like beer to be <laughs> between you and me. Well, so the result of the accidental intake of the antibiotics was that the remains of the ancient Nubians didn't seem to show as much evidence of infection as many other, uh, many other cultures. There were reports of Egyptian skeletons from the same era that had evidence of really bad infections, for example, tooth infections, things like that, didn't seem to show up as much as in Nubia. At one point or another, these uh, bones that were in Egyptian mummies seemed mm -hmm. to contain some evidence of tetracycline as well. So maybe they actually imported beer so, like, they had their own version of Heineken or Michelob or, or Stella in uh, Nubia, in, in Egypt, you know, from imported beer from Nubia, which is actually just their neighbor to the south. Well, the question is, did they recognize that by 
drinking this specific beer that something was cured. Well, or that's was possible. helped or was healed. Well, that's healed. possible. You know that the pirates and in, in, in ancient sea, or not ancient seamen, but seamen uh-huh. as late as the 1800s, mm-hmm. they used to drink grog, which was a mixture of a quarter quarter rum to three, one part rum to three parts water. And that was thought to be safer to drink than regular water. Because so they of, had some idea that something in the alcohol was making the water... Right. Safer for them to drink. Or maybe they just like... Didn't know why. Maybe they just like beer or rum. (laughs) Could be. Well, maybe they were trying to dilute their alcohol supplies with water versus (laughs) keep their water supplies going with alcohol. We don't know exactly. Good point. Yes, yes. (laughs) I'm sure they like their alcohol. (laughs) Yeah, I'll tell you, it is an amazing thing that... uh, more people didn't die of infections. At the, they didn't kill the majority of the population. They certainly did do that. And what we're trying to do is trying to prevent prevent these infections from causing what would at least be avoidable deaths in times of trouble. So this, these guys are sort of people that are after my own heart. I'll, <laughs> say, I'll say that much. Well, in the meantime, let's fast forward to more modern times. The first officially recognized antibiotic that was discovered for the cure of infection, I mean, that actually may be a matter of discussion. The answer may lie in, of all things, blue cheese. The Chinese and Indian cultures used molds in the cure of, of disease. They had little idea how they worked to do that, but that they used them. In 1874, a physician named William Roberts noted that a mold used in the making of blue cheese called Penicillium glaucum seemed to prevent the growth of bacteria in lab dishes. Sometime later... The noted scientist Louis Pasteur, here he is again, showed similar results with anthrax bacteria by using a related penicillium mold. Now, while the discovery of the connection between molds and bacterial inhibition was important, it actually didn't result at the time, unfortunately, in a product that could be released to the general public. Meanwhile, there was a German scientist, his name was Paul Ehrlich, and he was experimenting with dyes in around the 1880s. And he proposed that it was possible to make chemicals from the dyes that would kill bacteria without harming the human body. And after about 600 attempts, he actually discovered the first synthetic antibacterial agent that the year was 1907, and it was a compound from arsenic that is now called arsphenamine. And it was used as early as 1910 to treat, guess what, the sexually transmitted disease known as syphilis. It wasn't until 1927, however, that a Scottish physician and microbiologist named Alexander Fleming discovered a usable antibiotic from molds, and amazingly, it was entirely by accident. It seems that Dr. Fleming's laboratory was a little untidy. He was not the neatest gentleman, and in August of 1927, he left a number of bacterial specimens out when he took a family vacation. Probably not good policy, but... When he returned the next month, he noticed that one of them had developed a fungus. And strangely, the bacterial colonies that he had in that dish surrounding the, that, that surrounded the fungus, those were all gone. So Fleming identified the fungus as being from the penicillium family, as had been previously discovered by Roberts and Pasteur, and figured that it could kill bacteria. He called his discovery mold juice <laughs> until it was officially named penicillin, in 1929. 
Further investigation on penicillin's effect on bacteria revealed that it inhibits various types, including the germs that cause a number of diseases like scarlet fever, diphtheria, meningitis, and certain pneumonias. So pretty amazing. But despite this, Fleming couldn't find a way to mass produce his new discovery. That was left to two doctors, Howard Florey and uh, Ernst Chain, C-H, or I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, sounds like a German name, Heim, I don't know, in Oxford, England. And they took up further research with financial aid from the U.S. and Great Britain and brought in another researcher, Dr. Howard Heatley. He made a breakthrough in purifying the final product. And guess what? Mass production was begun. And that was pretty fortunate timing because as penicillin became available to the public, well, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And half of the total supply of penicillin was actually used on the first patient in early 1942. Half of all the penicillin in the world. The antibiotic was considered so useful, however, that by 1945, there had been over 646 billion doses manufactured every year. That is absolutely insane. (laughs) How did they ramp that up? I don't know. Seriously. Well, there's somebody that Howard Heatley made a a breakthrough in purifying it, so it allowed it to be mass-produced in a safe fashion. It is really amazing. We really have a lot of people that are alive today, and because their ancestors were given penicillin that was produced by Dr. Howard Heatley and Drs. Flory and everybody else that was involved. So uh, pretty interesting that how developed things have become from these crude beginnings. There are a lot of penicillin-related antibiotics nowadays, and they're used even today to treat a variety of infections. Now, you might think that penicillin was the first drug to achieve wide market appeal and proliferation, but you know what? It was preceded by another popular family of antibiotics called sulfonamides. Some people call them sulfa drugs. And these became widely available in the 1930s. Indeed, sulfa drugs were called the first miracle drug because they did indeed deserve credit for saving tens of thousands of lives during World War II, especially before, just before the uh, advent of penicillin, including the life of Winston Churchill, the the life of the son of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. They actually developed infections that were life-threatening. They actually were saved by sulfur drugs. Sulfur drugs were so widely used early in the war that many of the medics' first aid kits came with the drug in pill or powder form. They were instructed, the soldiers were instructed to pour it into an open wound to help prevent infection. Now, once bacteria became visible through the microscope, of course, they started looking at them and said they don't all look the same. And so they made efforts to classify the different types. Scientists found that bacteria came in various shapes and made efforts to categorize them based on their appearance. That was the first way, since they actually can see them and see that they have different shapes. So they figured out that might be a good start. Bacteria might exist as round or oval-shaped little look like balls, you know, like baseballs. Uh, These are called cocci, C-O-C-C-I. And uh, they could be individual entities or they can combine in a lot of different ways. If it's a monococcus, that's a coccus that remains apart from others. Coccus, cocci. Cocci. They look like a bunch (laughs) of little balls, but they're all separate. Now, if you have a diplococci, these things are sort of two of them stuck together. A tetrococcus, that's four of these round cells 
yeah, put together. Well, that makes sense. Tetra means four. Right. Now, there's something called Staphylococcus. That's very famous. Everybody knows about Staph. What that looks like, they're cocci, but they form a cluster of cells. They look like grapes, like a bunch of grapes. And then people, oh, I'm I sure... Oh, I think that's a great description, yeah, there by you the go. way. Very well, visual. You. Well, thank you. Well, uh, there's also streptococcus. A lot of people have heard of strep throat and things like that. Well, a streptococcus is one of those round cocci bacteria that when it divides, it does so in a manner that forms a chain. So you have a chain of these uh-huh. little balls. looks like a beads. Uh, and that's pretty impressive. And there are all sorts of... There are still either even more different arrangements, but you get the idea. Then there are bacilli. Bacilli are cylindrical in shape and are often referred to by scientists as rods, R-O-D-S. And most of these appear as single cells, but there are others like diplobacilli, which are like diplococci, right? They have two attached, and when they attach, they attach end-to-end. Then there's streptobacilli, like like, uh, streptococci. Those form chains, so you have these little cylinders that are just end-to-end. And there are other arrangements. Uh, Some of them are in a palisade-like formation. They look like an old-style picket fence. Just a lot of different, a lot of different types. There are even some that look like hybrids of cocci and and bacilli. Uh, They're called coxobacilli, and they look like short, stumpy rods that look like a cocci and a bacilli had a baby. Had a baby. There's also <laughs> something called spirilli, and that's another group of bacterial ser- cells that are curved. And the simplest form of that is something called vibrio, which re- would remind you of the shape of a comma. Now, spirilla is another type, and that is longer. It's like the comma has duplicated on itself, and it is basically a spiral-shaped bacteria. It's longer, uh, but it is pretty rigid. And then there's another kind called a spirochete, which is what you see in syphilis, for example, that's even more elaborate, but it's really flexible. It's, it's an elaborate spiral that is really flexible. There are other kinds of bacteria. Some of them come in filaments that look a lot like yeast. Then uh, under the microscope, then there are things that are pleomorphic, which means that they have all sorts of different shapes, so you can't count on them being in one shape. There are even some bacteria that are shaped like stars or triangles. So... Pretty, That's crazy. Pretty impressive. Nature is amazing. Uh, it is absolutely amazing. Now, enough of that. I want to talk a little bit about the infections that they cause. And let's talk about epidemics in general. An epidemic isn't a pandemic, uh, by definition, until it spreads. So how uh, are infectious disease transmitted through a community? Now, there are a lot of methods that an infection can take hold. And so let's talk a little bit about the, the various types. Uh, ingestion, of course, you can eat something that has bacteria that can cause infection. That's uh, uh, like an infected animal, for example, bats and monkeys, for example, are undercooked. Part, yes, they're not cooked right. thoroughly. Right, part of the diet, bush meat. No, you know what's interesting is uh, my oldest daughter is in. You know this, but they don't. I do know Thailand, <laughs> and she saw a either a nurse practitioner or a PA before she left. And interestingly enough, that person that she saw had actually just returned from Thailand. No way. Herself. Wow. And gave my daughter some good advice. She said, do not eat any kind of red meat Ah. because it is probably contaminated. Wow. Yes. 
so she's avoiding red meat. Now, I said you should be worried about sushi, but I guess it's a, you know, a seafood capital there. I mean, that's probably the mainstay of their diet. I'll tell you, it is a lot of seafood. So hopefully she won't get sick. She did give her medicine just in case. Ah, good, good. Yep. So that is that is really important. It makes a lot of sense. What you eat (laughs) that in any place where you're not not in a developed country, you know, people may not cook things as thoroughly as they should. Right. And so if something is undercooked, well, it could easily spread disease. Uh, They think that that's what happened with Ebola virus. They think that. Uh, these natives of West Africa were like cooking these bats uh, over like these 55 gallon drums, uh, you know, fires built in, made in them. Right. And were just not cooking the meat thoroughly or evenly enough. Right. And so as a result, wound up starting the epidemic. So it is something that definitely can happen. Matter of fact, uh, contamination of water and food, honestly, is responsible for just about all the poisoning outbreaks that make the news Almost every day these days, it seems. Uh, in 2011, there were 36 million pounds of turkey meat that was contaminated with salmonella. Oh, I remember uh, that. That's right. And they had, had to destroy it, right? Yes, that's right. They, they sent It sent about 100 consumers to the hospital before they got a handle on what was causing it. So it is something that... That's a lot of people. That is a lot of people. And uh, I don't know how many of those people may not have survived it, but I'll tell you... You really have to be aware. In 2018, this year alone, there are tainted products ranging from romaine lettuce to ground beef. Uh, They've been responsible for several outbreaks of salmonella, actually. So what the heck can we eat? (laughs) I mean, it's frightening. You just have to be very careful. This is not just restaurant food, Mm -hmm. either. This, I mean, the lettuce was pulled from shelves. The turkey meat was pulled from grocery stores, right? Right. And um, there was something else you had talked about. I forget. Oh, eggs? Yes. Eggs Eggs and Mm -hmm. the turkey and the lettuce. Those are the three things. So So it's not just about eating out, is my point. Mm -hmm. You could be buying this food for your family at the grocery store and it be contaminated. So it's not just restaurants. A lot of people feel... You know, you don't have to worry so much if you're cooking at home. You may have to. Make sure you thoroughly wash. I'm sure you're going to mention this. Your fruits and vegetables, folks. Right. <laughs> That's right. And I'll tell you one thing, that the rinds of fruit, or the peels of fruit, definitely can have Oof. bacteria on them. You have to absolutely wash and all of these before. Absolutely. And just because your lettuce says it was washed three times... Because I buy one that says it was washed three times. I still wash it number four at home. (laughs) I'm like, just in case those three were not enough, I want to physically wash it myself just to be sure. Well, there you go. So it doesn't hurt anything to do that. So ingestion is a major way that you can wind up getting infection. And you, if you're going to be the medic in times of trouble, you have to make sure that you keep an eye on how food is prepared, how water is sterilized so that you can keep your people healthy. Uh, The other major, or one other major way that infection spread is by inhalation. If you inhale a disease-causing organism that's called a pathogen, P-A-T-H-O-G-E-N, that's maybe the most dangerous form of transmission from a sheer number standpoint, because there are a lot of people breathing the same air as you. We live in societies where there are a lot of people and in crowds and stuff like that every day. You may be walking in a crowd. 
uh, to work or or you may have a, a large number of people that you have or you have contact with. Well, the infection in this case spreads through air by you're breathing in droplets that are floating around in the air from people that are afflicted with whatever infection it is. And these droplets are formed when body fluids from sick patients become aer- aerosolized, like uh, a, a spray can, a spray bottle, and, and it comes out and coughs and sneezes. And those people that are in close contact with people that are coughing and sneezing are certainly at risk for the germ, germ to enter through the mouth, nose, or eyes. This is where most, bac- uh, most uh, bacterial infections end up coming through, even, and viral infections as well. Most epidemics of respiratory illnesses like influenza, which is a virus, are actually spread this way. So uh, the Spanish flu in 1918, 100 years ago, which killed 50 to 100 million people, that's, that was it. People were in the same room with somebody who had it, and sure enough, a few days later, they wound up being sick themselves. Then there's injection. Uh, you can have a needle stick that can cause you to have an infection. Some people get very, very sick with hepatitis, and uh, which is an inflammation of the liver and other kinds of diseases uh, like HIV or uh, human immunodeficiency virus from injection of recreational drugs. But the truth is that almost any blood-borne illness can do this. The uh, opioid epidemic that's currently raging in the U.S. causes more and more cases to be transmitted this way. And of course, if you're in a hospital and wind up getting a lot of injections, sometimes they may accidentally spread an infection to you that way. Then there's absorption. Disease can be spread by touching secretions from somebody that's infected and then touching your mouth, your eyes, or let's say an opening, open sore, some break in the skin. People, especially children, are notoriously lax when it comes to the keeping their face clear of their hands. I mean, this is really one of the major problems. If you want to see how often this happens, just look at the average person where you're having a conversation with them. Count the number of times they touch their face over, you know, a few minutes, and you probably would be surprised to see that they do that pretty often. And the risk of infection by absorption indicates just how important it is for us to wear gloves and masks. So this is definitely a major risk and you want to have enough gloves and masks in your medical storage so that you can keep safe. Then, of course, there's sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, An entire group of infections are well known to be spread uh, from bodily secretions of infected people during sexual activities. Syphilis was the first one. Uh, From the 1400s to the 1900s, it was the scourge of almost every civilized country. And by the way, it's currently making a comeback in the United States. And there's, of course, there's gonorrhea, there's chlamydia, there's all sorts of other infections that can be passed from person to person sexually. I blame that on those apps. Oh, people are having (laughs) random, frequent sexual encounters with strangers without a relationship. They're not having dates and going, you know, out a few times. They're just hitting some button and meeting people. Oh boy. Well, because of that, they don't really know the the person's history. And if they don't use protection every single time, there's going to be higher rates of transmission because there's more of that kind of thing going on. It's happening more often. So it seems. So, yeah, the Internet is not exactly helping us in the fight 
to stop STDs. That's exactly right. Yes. And that's why we're seeing some of these coming back. Yeah. Now, of course, you can actually pass an infection from a pregnant mother to her fetus, right? And it's sort yep. of in the same body. There is a something called the um, the placental barrier where some some things actually don't pass through to the baby, but some things actually can. Uh, gonorrhea, for example, is a common sexually transmitted disease that if you get it during a pregnancy, actually increases the risk of damage to the baby. You know, damage can be in the form of a miscarriage or a very early delivery. Uh, a baby is born while a mother has an active gonorrhea infection. It can actually develop infection, the infection itself and could affect their eyes, can affect their joints, can do a lot of bad, bad things. There are a lot of other diseases that are passed this way too. HIV, syphilis, Ebola even, and uh, even Zika virus. Zika virus was very well known for the effect of the baby in Brazil especially where babies were born with very small heads. And very small heads equals very small brains and these children will have chronic issues for the rest of their lives. Now, let's see. I'm trying to think of other... Oh, well, maybe the most important reason that an infection spreads is complacency. You know, if you don't pay attention to confection control as the medic, you know what? That's going to be the biggest reason for the spread of a pandemic disease. Think about uh, the Ebola epidemic. In 2014, there were nurses at a Texas hospital that were infected when an Ebola victim traveled to the United States, managed to get through and traveled to the United States. And they blamed lax hospital protocols. And, well, sure enough, the United States was really unprepared for a possible spread to North America. So unprepared, in fact, that there were only a total of 19 isolation beds that could handle a highly contagious disease like Ebola in the entire country. Now, I don't mean the entire country of Monaco. I'm talking about the entire United States. And that has changed because we learned some hard lessons with the Ebola uh, epidemic. And this issue has now been corrected in the U.S. There are a lot of isolation beds or, or units that can be turned into isolation units pretty quickly. But most of the world is still very poorly prepared to deal with a major epidemic of a highly contagious disease. I want to talk a little bit about something non-infectious. Recently, I put out an article on kidney stones. Now, the kidney, and I did this as a result of a question that was posed to me by a listener of ours and of Jack Spierko's and on his survival podcast, and he has a history of kidney stones. Let's talk a little bit about that. The kidney, well, that's an organ that has the tendency to accumulate crystals, and these crystals form what we call stones, or in medical ease, we call that nephrolithiasis. I'm not going to spell that. No, you just need to know that they're kidney stones. Many kidney stones are as small as grains of sand. Now, some are bigger, but any size can actually cause pretty darn impressive and excruciating pain that's known as renal colic. Uh, it can be severe enough to actually cause damage to the walls of uh, some of the urinary tract and, and cause bleeding in the urine, as a matter of fact. The chances of experiencing a kidney stone is about 1 in 20 over the course of a lifetime, so it's not that uncommon. It is something that we do see not uh, not uncommonly in the general patient population, and you, as a medic, will probably see it at one point or another 
if you have a big enough survival group. Now, once formed in the kidneys, stones usually don't cause symptoms until they move down the urinary tract from the tubes that connect the kidneys to the bladder. That is the, those are called the ureters, U-R-E-T-E-R-S. And when this happens, the stones, if they're big enough, can actually block the flow of urine. That's really bad. It can cause a great deal of pain, swelling of the kidney. And this is something that can be a real medical emergency. Now, kidney stones, however, if they're tiny, tiny, you know, grain of, grain of sand kind of kidney stones, they actually may have no problem passing through the ureter until they get to the bladder, but then maybe cause pain as they attempt to pass through the tube that goes from the bladder to the outside, to your, your urethra. And that really, really can hurt as well. And so, the pain of, from a kidney stone can absolutely incapacitate you if you ever know, have known somebody who's had them. You can see that they are bedridden. They cannot do a thing. They're in a great deal of pain. Now, once you have a kidney stone, the sad thing is that it's likely you're going to get them again at some point or another because you just have a tendency to produce and accumulate these crystals that end up uh, making a stone. Now, the symptoms of kidney stones are pretty uniform, but there are actually several different types of stones. There are calcium stones, and these are the most common. Calcium combines with other substances such as oxalate, phosphate, carbonate to form stones. Uh, these occur more often in men than in women, and usually in those people that are 20 to 40 years old. It's sort of funny that uh, these statistics exist because everybody that I know of that has had major issues with kidney stones were men, and they were at the time between 20 to 40 years old. So yes, indeed, that is that is the time that you will get them, and especially if you're a guy. Then there are other stones called cysteine stones, and these form in people who have an excess of a substance called cysteine in the urine, and that's a condition that sort of runs in families. So if you have cysteine stones in the family, you might get it yourself. Then there's another one called struvite stones. These are found mostly in women, and they can get really large. They can cause blockages at any point in the urinary tract. They're not an infection by themselves, but a history of infections, especially chronic infections, that is a risk factor for developing these. And there are women that develop chronic bladder infections or chronic urinary tract infections, and they indeed can develop these struvite stones. And then there are uric acid stones, and these are more common in men, again, than in women. And these stones are associated with things like gout, which is a kind of arthritis, something we've talked before on this show, affects oftentimes the big toe and uh, causes the accumulation of crystals in different parts of your body, joints that are can be extraordinary, that can be extraordinarily painful there, and it can certainly be extraordinarily painful if you form a kidney stone from the uric acid. Now, to diagnose a kidney stone, what you need to do is look for pain that starts suddenly and comes and goes. Pain's commonly felt on the side of your back, also known as your flank, and if you pound lightly with a closed fist on the right and left flank at the level of the lowest rib, that'll cause significant pain in patients with kidney stones on the affected side because of the inflammation that occurs. Now, this also can occur with kidney infections, too, and you can tell the difference between a kidney stone and an infection by whether there is a fever associated with the pain. Most kidney infections present with a fever as well as flank pain, 
I guess it's possible to have a fever with a kidney stone, but honestly, it is much less common. The, uh, it should be noted that besides the absence of a fever, the pain actually moves down from the kidney as the stone moves. So as the stone moves, so will the pain. The discomfort travels down to lower in the abdomen and could settle in the groin or even the urethra, as we mentioned before. Now, your treatment goal with a kidney stone is to assist the stone to pass through the system, as, the, through the body as quickly as possible. So staying well hydrated is one way to help. It's, it's a good way to prevent it, and it's a good way to treat it. you got to drink, though. Drink, drink, drink at least eight glasses of water a day so you're producing a ton of urine, and that urine flow helps move the stone along and, and decreases the amount of time that you're going to be in pain. Now, some people have used water pills, also called diuretics, or cranberry juice, which has uh, a diuretic effect uh, for that purpose to help the kidney stone move, move along faster. Of course, pain relief can help control the pain. Ibuprofen, I guess, in times of trouble will probably be the most available treatment. Hope everybody has accumulated a, a supply of that in their survival medicine cabinet. Uh, stronger pain medicines, if you can get them, probably be more effective, though, with somebody who has this kind of issue. Now, although there are drugs available to decrease the frequency of developing certain stones, some dietary changes can prevent the formation, can maybe prevent the formation of kidney stones, especially avoiding foods that have a lot of calcium naturally. And these are, I mean, you wouldn't actually know it by looking at a lot of these, but spinach has a lot of calcium, rhubarb, beets, parsley, uh, sorrel, wild sorrel, has a lot of calcium in it, and even chocolate. And of course, decreasing dairy intake would also decrease the amount of calcium that's available for stone, stone formation. Of course, milk has a lot of uh, calcium in it, and this will keep them at least as small as possible and hopefully easier to pass. That, now, for people that have uric acid stones, sodium bicarbonate or sodium citrate increases the alkalinity of the urine and actually may decrease the likelihood that you'll form uric acid stones. And so the, what kind of stone you have does may, maybe make a difference in your strategy. You might be able, in normal times at least, you might be able to find out what kind of stone you have from your doctor. He may have you strain, strain your urine, or in other words, put a strainer uh, between you and the toilet and and get that once you get that stone out you might notice it as a little granules or it might actually be a little a little stone well you might be able to strain your urine get the get the stone they can send it to the laboratory and they'll identify exactly what kind of stone you're dealing with now there are other substances that may help depending on the kind of stones that you have uh, horsetail tea that's a natural diuretic pomegranate juice uh, uh, teas made from dandelion root, from celery, from basil. They think that these are actually pretty good. And, and there are a lot of supplements on the market that claim to be effective. There's a, a, something called Stonebreaker, and that's uh, an extract that you'll find on Amazon. And another that you'll find in Amazon, the Amazon jungle, is a, a stone, so-called Stonebreaker in Spanish, Chanca Piedra, uh, it is a plant called Philanthus neruri, and I can't vouch for the effectiveness of these extracts or of this particular plant that's found in the Amazon jungle. But there's just not there's just not a lot of hard data. But 
between you and I, the pain can be so significant that you may want to consider using some of these things. I mean, bottom line is you have to do your own research and come to your own conclusions. I think that that probably makes the most sense. Well, while we're on the subject of stones, I want to talk about another type of stone completely unrelated to the kidney, and that is the gallstone. You have something in your body called the gallbladder, and that's a hollow sort of sac-like organ that's attached to the liver, which is right under your lowest rib on on your right side. And the gallbladder stores a thick liquid substance that's called bile, and the liver secretes this bile, and the gallbladder sort of stores it and helps it helps you digest fats, essentially. After a meal, gallbladder contracts and bile passes through to the small intestines, intestine through uh, little tubes that we call ducts, the bile duct. Now, if you have excess bile cholesterol, that can cause solid deposits inside the gallbladder that can be minuscule, like a kidney stone might be, uh, but can get pretty impressively big, can be the size of a golf ball, and we call these gallstones. Gallstones are very common. Maybe 10 to 15% of the population has it. That means that if you have, like kidney stones, if you have a large enough group of people in your survival community, you may indeed wind up with somebody that has the condition and that's something that you have to follow. Luckily, a lot of people don't have symptoms from gallbladder disease, but in 1% or 2%, the stones can actually block the ducts, and that causes pain as the gallbladder becomes distended uh, from uh, all this excess accumulation of bile that just can't get out. And the inflammation caused by this condition is called cholecystitis. Cholecystitis. And so... There are two main types of gallstones. One is cholesterol stones, as I mentioned. These are the grand majority of them, but may not actually be related to the actual cholesterol levels in the bloodstream. Somehow, blood cholesterol does not always correspond with the amount of cholesterol that's producing these stones. So it is something a, a little unusual. And then there are other stones called bilirubin stones. These are sometimes called pigment stones. This type can occur in people who have illnesses that destroy red blood cells. So pretty kooky stuff. Uh, The byproducts of this destruction release a substance called bilirubin into the bile, and that forms a stone. So you have a special type of stone called a bilirubin stone. Just like the pain with um, kidney stones is called renal colic, the pain associated with cholecystitis is called biliary colic for bile. Uh, it's sort of crampy in nature, usually seen in the upper right quadrant of the abdomen, could radiate to the back. And if it's not relieved, inflammation of the liver or the gallbladder, or even the pancreas can become life-threatening in some cases. A serious blockage of the bile duct with corresponding liver and pancreas inflammation, boy, that leads to a number of different symptoms, uh, fever, nausea and vomiting, yellowing of the skin and eyes, that's called jaundice, and, uh, of course, the right upper quadrant pain in the abdomen. Gallstones are commonly diagnosed by ultrasound. You're not going to have that off the grid. So the classic finding is something called Murphy's sign. You press with one hand just below the midline of the lowest rib on the right side. And basically, (laughs) ask the person to breathe deeply, and boy, if the gallbladder is inflamed, that person will jump right off the table. It's going to be very uncomfortable. Of course, there are a lot of ways to deal with this. Most of the time, They treat it by surgical removal, 
you can live without a gallbladder and still stay healthy. Matter of fact, there are over 800,000 gallbladder surgeries called cholecystectomies. Well, I have a question. That where, are performed where are the, every year. Where are all the gallbladders? <laughs> I know. What do they do with all of them? That's, that's a lot afterwards? of gallbladders. All darling. the gallstones. Maybe they make necklaces of them. <laughs> I don't know. Yes. Well, I have actually been involved with some of those, and we do not keep the gall, we do not keep the okay, good. gallstones well, to I'm make necklaces. Good. <laughs> there are new, uh, methods that are supposedly being developed. They're still not completely, I think. Fully fledged, but shockwave disintegration of stones, certain acid treatments may so show promise for non-surgical therapy one day in the future. So there are some alternative remedies. These are things that you probably should know about. These are mostly taken orally, things like apple cider vinegar mixed with uh, water. Uh, uh, that same Chenka piedra, that Philanthus neruri, the plant native to the Amazon, is thought to be good to break stones and uh, it seems to be recommended not only for kidney stones, but for gallstones as well. So that's sort of interesting. Uh, there are a lot of others that have been recommended in the past. Peppermint, uh, turmeric, alfalfa, coffee, ginger root, psyllium, red yeast, rice, dandelion root. Gosh, so, wow. much, so many different things. Uh, but it's you just got to know that hard scientific data that proves the effect of all these things that I'm mentioning still lacking in a lot of cases. So the truth is, is that your results may vary, (laughs) as they say with a lot lot of things. (laughs) And sadly, it's just going to be very difficult to eliminate some of the known risk factors for gallbladder disease. This includes being female, being 40, having had children, and being obese, being sort of fat. So those were in the past called the four Fs. Now they have changed it to a number of other things like being diabetic and and stuff because they want to be a little more politically correct. But the truth is is that those are the grand majority of the people you'll see with gallstones are going to include people that have some of those characteristics that I just mentioned. That's all the time we have for this week. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton. We'll be back next time.